0: Well, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 25 of chapter 2 through verse 7 of chapter 3, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the trees which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the days you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's once again seek God's face as we come to his holy word. gracious God your word at times sounds so foreign to us so far away in time and place and so at times even you seem so far away and yet We come to you through through your, your Son, our Lord, and ask that you would continue to be with us and draw near to us, and you would help us to understand your word and some of the implications and applications for ourselves. Help me to articulate your truth and not interject anything of my own, and help us to hear your voice and obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I agree with uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary, or his, actually his sermons uh, on Genesis 3. For he's described a feeling that I myself have had at times. He said, there is in every one of us, a recollection, a memory of what we once were. Adam was upright, and he was righteous. And though we have lost this, and though we have never known it, a memory lingers. It is in all humanity a sense of something else. We all have this idea that we were meant for happiness, that we were meant for peace, that we were meant for a life of joy. But that somehow this has been taken from us. And thus, men and women are ever restless, ever ill at ease, and find it difficult to live with themselves and with others. We look around the world that we live in. And it doesn't take much observation to say things have gone terribly wrong. Things are not right. And if we take the time to look at ourselves, there's still that same kind of feeling. There's got to be something more. This isn't always right. As we approach chapter 3 of Genesis, I want to take that feeling that he's just described, and I want to wrap it up, as it were, into a, an illustration. You go to the doctor. And what you want from your doctor, because something's not right, is you want a good Diagnostician. That is somebody who can see you and diagnose what is wrong. You don't want somebody of a doctor, you don't want a doctor who's just going to say, you know, I don't want to tell this person the bad news. So I'll just tell him it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. You don't want him to just take the surface view. Well, you say you have a headache. Well, here's a couple of aspirin. That'll solve the problem. Or here's some Tylenol. That'll take care of the problem. Say, no, there's something more here. I don't have headaches like this. I've never had headaches like this. And he doesn't ask any questions about where it started. You say, this guy's not what I want to listen to. He's not telling me really what's wrong. He has no answers for the problems I'm facing. He doesn't know I fell down the stairs yesterday and banged my head on the floor, the concrete floor in my basement. And he's not even asking. He doesn't know what's wrong. But he's coming up with all these little ideas and saying, well, take a little pill here or go over here and do this little bit of an exercise or don't worry about it. Just get some more sleep. It'll be fine tomorrow. Well, that's the way a lot of philosophers... A lot of people in our world today approach the problems we face. Just need a little more sleep and it'll go away in the morning. It's going to be okay. Or there's a real surface level. Or they have no idea. They're actually oncologists and they're trying to deal with your ingrown toenail. They don't know what I'm doing. They're not coming up with the answers of what's really wrong. When we look around at society, when we look around at the world that we're in, we need to come back to Genesis chapter 3, because Genesis chapter 3 answers for us the question, where did all this go wrong? Why is it that mankind is as bad as they are? There's also some answers here as to why we're not worse. And so I'd like for us again to come back to Genesis As we take up these worldview principles from these chapters in Genesis, I'd like for us to consider what God's Word has to say about the problems we face. Now, I've heard men say, and I've said it from this pulpit, it's been a long time since we've been in this chapter. It was May last year. (laughs) So it's been a long time. So bear with me as we look back over this section very briefly here. We're going to look at Genesis verses twenty-two, verses 2, 22, 23 to 3, 7, where Adam and his wife and the serpent. And I just want to begin with this, something now of an illustration of a bookshelf. Imagine this passage is like a bookshelf. And on either end of the bookshelf, there are bookends. And we have two bookends in this section. One bookend is found in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed, or were not ashamed. The other bookend is in verse 7 of chapter 3. Notice how it flips it around. Their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So the man and the wife were naked and unashamed, and now they're ashamed because they see that they're naked. Now in between these two bookends, we have some important information, but first, before the first bookend. And before the first bookend means chapter one, one through chapter 2:25. And you remember how we saw it, and I emphasized this, and I came back to this time and time again, because we can't understand Genesis chapter three if we don't understand how glorious chapters one through two really are. So before the first bookend, we have a perfect creation, perfectly in order perfectly suited for, to accomplish all that God had designed it to be. We have then in chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, a perfect man created in this perfect world. And in verses 8 through 17 of chapter 2, before we get to this first bookend, we have a perfect home, a garden, where he's going to work and live and have provision for all that he needs. And then in verses 18 to 24, my favorite part, a perfect bride. A woman who is perfectly suited to what Adam needs to be his helper. To be, as it were, like God and be a helper to him at his point of need. At the end of chapter 1, you remember we read in verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And in chapter 2 after the end after he's formed this woman and brought him to the man we read that they were together both naked and were not ashamed and as one commentator summarized it the naming of the animals a scene which portrays man as monarch of all he surveys poignantly reveals him as a social being made for fellowship not power. He will not live until he loves, give himself away to another of his own level. So the woman is present wholly as his partner and counterpart. She is valued for herself alone. She's perfectly suited for him. What a perfect world. We haven't even gotten to the first bookend yet. And we come to that first bookend that I read, and the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. A perfect world, a perfect couple, a perfect relationship. But then between these two bookends, after this bookend, we have some books on this shelf. And the books that we find on the shelf, as we read just a little bit ago, are not not very pleasant. The first book that we find on the shelf is a big volume, and it's called The Serpent and the Conversation. And there's a lot of talking that goes on, and they're talking all about God. Talking all about what God said, or might have said, or what was not right about what God said. But nothing is said about God speaking. And then the next book is a really dark one, and it's The Sinister Success Deception and Rebellion. They eat the fruit. The woman is deceived. She takes of the fruit. She gives it to her husband, who in utter rebellion eats the fruit. Disobedience to the well-understood, clear, definitive command of their Creator. I'm going to use some big words here for those who get it. That's great. For those of you who don't, I can explain it later. But let me just give you this magnificent quote by Albert Barnes. He says, The rectitude of God is impugned, his prerogative invaded, his command disregarded, his attribute of moral omniscience, and all the imaginable advantages attendant thereupon grasped with an eager and willful hand. They shove God aside. They invade his place. They disregard his command. They ignore his moral awareness of all that's going on and all the advantages that have been given to them. They grasp for more that which they were told not to have. What a horrible thing to do. That's what they did. All about God. But Yahweh God is absent. And we read in chapter 3 verse 7 the other bookend. And the eyes of both of them were opened and that they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Shame. After this bookend we read or this, this set of books. We look at the last bookend and really now we're going to look at everything from chapter 3 verse 8 to chapter 3, verse 25, or at least we'll see how far we get this evening. Their eyes were opened. That's the immediate response, immediate consequence. They thought they could be like God in their own way. They thought that they could live, as it were, wiser and happier lives if they did what God told them not to do. They chose to listen to themselves. And they were left with not happier, not wiser circumstances. But this new knowledge that they had of good and evil, which we find out later, they did have some knowledge of good and evil, left them with two things. Shame and guilt. or well, actually three, because there's also fear. Shame, guilt, and fear. Knowledge of nakedness before one another left them now ashamed. And they were guilty because they had transgressed the law of God and they knew it. It was all too patently obvious to them. Well, that's where we've been so far in Genesis 3. We come now to verse 8. Now we looked at the, it really is Roman number four in my outline, if you have the old outline, but you can use it as the title for the sermon, the consequences of the sin, the consequences of the sin. Now notice with me verse eight, because verse eight in chapter three really is a transitional verse. For we read there, then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Now I say this is a transition because notice that the record now turns back to talk about God. In the brief section at the beginning of chapter 3, God is not present. God is talked about, his word is talked about, and yet yet he is not spoken of in that part of the record. And yet here, again, we see him coming. Yahweh God approaches. He's walking in the garden. We read that Yahweh God is present. His presence is there. Now, whether it's his presence that's in the midst of the garden, the trees of the garden, or whether his presence is there, when they're in the midst of the garden, the fact of the matter is they're in the garden and he comes walking. Now, listen to this. Listen, to this. this just amazes me. I just it just it struck me. They heard him. How do you hear God walking? But they hear him. In other words, in other words, God wanted them to know he was coming. God could have appeared anywhere he wanted to appear and he's everywhere. And he could have been right there, right next to them and said, I saw that. But he didn't. But they hear him coming. He wants them to know he's drawing near. And that's utterly amazing to me. Because they've just rebelled. The treason is just absolutely astounding. And yet he comes to them. And then they hide themselves in the midst of the trees that he created. And where he placed them. And not only am I amazed that God comes to them, I'm amazed at their folly. As as I think it was Martin Lloyd Jones, or as one of the men said, God made both sides of the trees. You can't hide behind the trees. Yahweh is present. And just like chapters 1 and 2, now the record turns back because Moses wants us to contemplate God coming to man. So now verses 9 through 13, follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. And again, I'm reading from an, uh, a, a newer version of the New American Standard Translation uh, That's where the word Yahweh God is used. So verse 9, Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, excuse me, She gave to me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So here we have another conversation. This time it's not the serpent and the woman. It's God coming. And... The section I've entitled this section, verses 9 through 13, God examines Adam and Eve. And that comes from any number of different books on Genesis. God examines Adam and Eve. You could say he interrogates them, but I think that's a bit rough in terms of the way he approaches it. I want you to think of a detective sitting down with a, a criminal and he's trying to pry things out. It's, it, no, no, this, this is a God, this is a father coming to a child who knows that he's done something that's going to that's hurt him and he's trying to get him to see the problem the creator father god has come into the garden man sought to live without god to make his own way in life and when things didn't work out the way he had planned and hoped he even tries to take care of his problem by himself I messed up, we messed up, let's make some fig leaves, cover ourselves up. He's trying to do everything as though God is not part of the picture. And God comes to man. And in this examination, God draws out man and woman. His questions are designed to draw them out. So his first question in verse 10 to the man, where are you? Now, God, (laughs) you know, the patience of God, he knows right where he is. What's he doing? It's not like God doesn't know him. He can't see him. God is in every place. His eyes are in every place, seeing the evil and the good. Proverbs 15, 3. He knows exactly where man is standing. He knows he's standing behind that birch tree over there. He barely can hide behind it. He knows he's there. I made that up, right? That part about the birch tree. But it's over there behind that tree. He knows it. And yet he's saying to the man, where are you? He's trying to draw the man out of his hiding. And the man explains. He says, I heard you. Oh, you knew I was coming. Yeah, yeah, I I heard you. I heard you. I heard the sound of you in the garden. that scared me I was afraid when I was a little boy my bedroom was in the basement and my parents bedroom was upstairs over my room so when I was goofing off they could hear it I was not smart enough to know that but I was smart enough to know that when I heard coming down the stairs, that that meant someone was coming. And I knew what was coming with it. <laughs> right? No, it didn't work. It didn't work there. It doesn't work for Adam. It doesn't work for us. But don't we do the same thing? When we find that we're guilty, we get scared. And the guilt that's in our hearts, it makes us fearful. Well, I'll be. what if I, I'm found out? You know that that little cookie that you took, and you hope, no, that the crumbs don't show, or that little change you did on the income tax, that you hope the IRS is not—they're going to be going for bigger fish. They're not going to look for this. But nevertheless, you kind of get that mail in—you know—in the, from the IRS. Oh no, I've been audited. Right? There's that fear. You're doing something you know is wrong. And fear. It's called guilt. Guilt feelings. Because you're guilty. You've broken God's law. That's what this is feeling. That's what he's feeling. He says, I was afraid. I was naked. I I didn't know. I was ashamed. And so I hid. Did you notice what's missing? There's no confession. There's nothing about, I... I broke your law. I broke your commandment. There's only acknowledgement about the unpleasant consequences of the actions he's taken. Doesn't that sound like us? We're just doing the same thing over and over again. And we violate God's law. And, we, and we've got all the, oh, this, is, this did not work out the way I'd hoped. And shame and guilt. And it's very interesting. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his, has a sermon, and Pastor Donnelly as well, but I didn't get a chance to listen to that. But on this, this one question, where are you? And that's where God starts with Adam. Where are you, Adam? Adam, do you see where you are? Adam, I know where you are. Do you see where you are? Do you see that you have put yourself at odds with me? Do you see that you have stepped away from me? And my friends, that's a question that comes to every one of us whenever the gospel is preached. Whenever God's word comes and It comes with this question, as it were, kind of in the background. Where are you in relation to this God? Where are you sitting when this gospel comes? And you notice his great concern is with Adam. he's, He's not concerned about, Adam, what were you thinking? Adam, let's discuss this about what's really the wisest thing you should have done and how you should have gone about this. He's not not interested in discussing ideas with Adam. And he's not interested in just discussing ideas and philosophies and intellectual problems that you have. He's interested in you. Where are you in relation to God? This God who created all things and gives you life and breath. And upholds you and every atom in your body, as it says of Christ, by the word of his power. Where are you in relation to this God? As he comes tonight and says, I am the God who created you. You owe me to obey me. Where are you? Have you followed my word? Are you interested in the truth that I bring to this world? Where are you? Do you see your own ugliness? The ugliness of your selfishness? The ugliness of your pride? The ugliness of your greed? The ugliness of your lies? Do you see the ugliness of your unfaithfulness of what you did, as we heard this morning, in secret that nobody else knew what you were clicking on? Where are you? God says, I see where you are. Do you see where you are? Do you see, as the scripture describes you, as one who is lost? One who is separated from God? But was made to have communion with God. Are you standing beside or behind some intellectual enigma? I've got an intellectual problem with God. As one of my fellow professors, pastors would say, what's her name? Or your philosophical puzzles. God's not interested in your philosophical puzzles. God says, I am God, and you are my creature. I've come to you. The knowledge of God that you have, of his existence, and of his attributes, his divinity, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, he is inescapable. You know he exists. And you're trying to suppress it. You're trying to say, that there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. He won't take thought of me. He won't remember. He won't think of me. But it's gnawing at you. And we'll continue to gnaw at you. And there's no escaping it. Where are you? Don't give him some explanation. He's not interested in your explanations. He's interested in you. And you meeting with him. And so man responds, and so God comes back with a second question Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He comes to the man, he says, I'm going to keep drawing to him, I'm going to keep drawing him out. I've, I've, I've gone after him to tell him I'm here to meet with him, and he's here to meet with me face to face. And yet now he says to him, Who told you you were naked? Why does that bother you? Basically, is what he's saying. Why is that bothering you? You were naked before and there wasn't a problem. There was complete transparency between you and the woman and between you and me. And why is there now no transparency? Why are you trying to hide? Have you eaten from the tree? You see, this is an opportunity. God is coming with a gracious opportunity for Adam to repent. To confess his sin and repent. Now, his first question, who told you you were naked, goes completely unanswered. Because really the second one is what grips a hold of Adam. And Adam confesses. He confesses his wife's sin. <laughs> That's what he says, right? That's not that what he did. He says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me. Aha! Uh-huh. So he confesses her sin. And he confesses God's lack of Wisdom. The woman you gave me. That's how like, he a sense in which he's actually blaming God. He thinks he knows better than God. Though he's the one who's feeling guilty, and he's the one who's feeling shame, and he's the one who's trying to hide, and he's the one who's thrown away his communion with God, and his joy in God's presence. But it does end with a confession, and I don't know if he said it this way, but I I always read it this way because this is the way I would have said it. And I ate. Emphasis on the first half. She took, she gave, and I ate. And there is a confession there. And what we really see here, I think, is at least something of the fact that as an image bearer of God, Adam and every human being in this room is a moral creature. And as a moral creature, you go around looking at the world and saying things like, that's right, that's not right, that's wrong, that's not wrong. Remember, those of you who are old enough, (laughs) (laughs) 9-11, old enough, right? 9-11, 2001, and all of a sudden everybody's saying, this is evil! Peter Jennings, this is evil! And within a week, it was, well, there are some radical Muslims. And evil was out the window, except for one little, very small sliver. Because you see, they can't live with talking that way because our conscience keeps pointing the fingers back at ourselves. And that's what's happening here. You know, we read in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, and we heard it as it was expounded. Every one of us has a conscience. As, as human beings, as image bearers of God, we have a conscience. We are moral beings. And that conscience is given in nature, made by God in every one of us. And it's tied to the law of God, whether you want to or not. They're given on, the mount, on mount Sinai. And it's tied to the judgment day that's yet to come. And every time your conscience says guilty, it's like the judgment day coming down to where you're sitting right here and saying, you're guilty before me. And that's what Adam is facing. He's facing a judgment day and his conscience is telling him, I'm ashamed of myself. I'm guilty before God. That's why he's afraid. Now, let me just say, if you're feeling guilty because of something you've done, if you're ashamed because you did something you know you shouldn't have done, you lied, you stole, you disobeyed, you were a hypocrite, you took the Lord's name in vain, you have other gods besides the one true God, and you know it, and you're, and you're feeling that sense of guilt, let me tell you something, don't run from that. Shame and guilt are two of God's sheepdogs to drive you to Jesus Christ. They are a kind gift from God to say yes, that's right, but there's an answer for that. Even as we heard the mercy of God, the grace of God, there where sin abounds, grace superabounds. There is forgiveness. I love 1 John 1:7 1, that the blood of Christ cleanses from Well, those big sins, no. A few of those sins, no, all sin. And if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a glorious verse. And when you feel that guilt and when you feel that shame because you know you have violated God's law, don't try to squelch that. Take it to heart and flee to Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness. As we heard the prayer of that publican God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what God is seeking to get from Adam. God, be merciful to me. I have sinned against you. I have violated your law. I ate of the tree you told me not to. Please be merciful to me. That's what he should have done. Adam should have thrown himself down at the feet of God coming to him in the garden and pled for mercy. And God gives him opportunity to do that. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? But we do just like Adam, don't we? We'll find somebody else to blame. Isn't that that American culture right now? Do you see the problem? They don't see where the problem lies. The problem lies that in our hearts, we are sinners guilty before God, each and every one of us. It's not corporate America's that's the problem. It's not our sinful past that's the problem. It's that we are sinners before a holy God. And He comes to us. And we just celebrated, didn't we? The end of last year, Emmanuel, who came into this world, sinners to save. He comes to us. He's coming again to you in the gospel and pleading with you. See your sin. Don't run from that thought. Recognize it's a fact and go to the one who can solve it. But then the the, the passage turns after examining Adam. He examines the woman. Yahweh God said to the woman. And he gets right to the point with her. Now, she probably heard, I'm assuming, this conversation that happened with Adam. And he says to her, what is this you have done? You see, Adam really wasn't telling a lie when he said She took from the tree and she gave me. That's true. That's what happened. It was factual. And again, don't we, well, I'm just giving you the facts. God's not looking for full disclosure. He's looking for confession. And so he comes to the woman now. What does he say to the woman? He says to her, what have you done? What is this you have done? And again, what's he doing? He gives Eve an opportunity to confess her sin. He gives Eve an opportunity to step out into the light from behind the tree and say, I sinned. I was deceived. I believed the lie. That was my sin, and I ate. My will directed me, and I ate. I sinned. But she doesn't say that. She, too, makes a confession of the serpent's sin. The serpent deceived me. Oh, poor Eve. Yes, it was poor Eve in one sense, but it's also Eve's sin that she believed the lie. She confesses the sin of the serpent, and yet she too eventually has to say before God, and I ate. And I ate. And again, the question comes to us, and I hope you, you hear these questions from God, and they were, as, as it were, ring down through the years, and they come to each and every one of us, because we read from Romans chapter 5, we sinned in Adam, and guess what? We continue to sin like Adam, not in the same way of eating the tree from the tree, but we continue to sin in a similar pattern, like Eve, we see, we use pragmatism we use desire and we think we know better than god and so we take or we choose for some other reason to say i know better than god i'm going to rebel and just like that question where are you and that and that and that question have you eaten have you violated my law he comes to her and says what have you done there was a, a teacher a first grade teacher she told me she'd been in first grade for 30 years she hadn't uh, hadn't graduated from first grade. And uh, she used to have something happen in her classroom and she would call the kids out into the hallway and she'd ask them a question. She'd ask them this question. What have you done? That was a very wise question to ask because she says, I learned all kinds of things they had done that I didn't know they had done. (laughs) They thought they were caught. And so, you know, their conscience was already bothering them and whoa, okay, yeah, and anything else? And isn't that, in a sense, what God says? What have you done? Now, God's not saying, I don't know what you've done, and I don't know all that you've done. But God is saying, what have you done? Have you thought about what you've done? Or are you trying to shift your mind to something else and put it out of your mind? Isn't that what we do when we sin? Well, but I did all these good things. Or, you know what? I've just got to go off and, and, and do something else. I remember a young man who was uh, supposed to be studying for his tests. But he thought, you know, I'm going to go play basketball. I'm not going to do my schoolwork. I'm going to go play basketball. And about halfway through the game, just running like a madman, trying to silence his conscience. Blew out his ACL. Missed the shot. And went home. Crying out to God all the way. You see, when the word comes to you, the commandment comes and exposes you, when the law of God comes as that bright light and exposes the sin, the question comes with that light. What have you done? Not what are your values. Not what's important to you, but what have you done in the sight of God? What have you done? You have broken God's law. The God who feeds you, keeps you, blesses you. The God who sent his son to die for sinners like you. What have you done? I will not have this man to rule over me. Slap. Spit. Beat. You see, we would do the same thing to Jesus Christ that all of those Jews did in that early day. That's what your sin is like. That's what you've done. It was just a little lie. I was just trying to get my wife off my back. I was just trying to satisfy something for my boss. No, you've broken the law of God. It was just 15 minutes of lust. No, you've spit in the face of God, you've rebelled against your Creator. Where are you? Have you violated God's law? Think about what you've done. Don't just think about it. There's an answer for it. There's a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. And the more that you see something of that uncleanness, the more you'll run. And the quicker you'll run, or you should. But don't run away from God. Don't do an Adam and Eve. You can't hide from God. There's a judgment day coming and you will meet him and it will all be made known and there will be no escaping. Well, I don't believe in the judgment day. That's fine. It's going to happen whether you believe in it or not. He's told you. My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, As we heard this morning, we too sometimes still sin, don't we? Don't run and hide. Don't hide behind your little religious practices. Well, I had my devotions this morning. Or I'll just pray a little bit longer. Yes, you should pray a little bit longer. You should do your religious practices. But don't hide behind those. Confess your sin. Forsake your sin. And find forgiveness again in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, I plead with you. Learn from Adam. What a horrible choice he made. What a horrible choice he made. Now, I'm just taking one part of this. There's a whole other aspect to this that I haven't even gotten to yet. Pastor Steve kind of was leaning all in that direction in the sense of, we died in Adam. We're guilty in Adam. But you know what? Nobody went to hell just because of the sin of Adam. Because every one of us is born a sinner. And every one of us sins. And we're going to be judged for our sin three times over. Because of Adam, because of our sinful nature, and because of our sinful acts. So go to Jesus Christ, whose blood can cleanse from all your sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be merciful to us that we would learn from Adam and Eve's mistakes. from Not from their mistakes, from their sins. We would not commit sin. Help us to see it for what it really is. Help us to see where we are when we sin in being separated from you. Father, use this passage to help us understand ourselves first because we see ourselves in the light of who you are. Be merciful, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.